Welcome Trinity Bible Church as, as well as visitors and, and family. Uh, this morning we are continuing in the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 14, covering some of the most well-known, um, most talked about and taught miracles during the humiliation of Christ. This morning, last week we went over the feeding of the 5,000. This morning we take what is probably titled somewhere in your Bible, Jesus Walks on Water. So we'll be reading from the entirety of 22 through 33 this morning. If you are visiting here, I will read uh, the entirety of the text out loud and then afterwards give you an opportunity to pray uh, in silence uh, for the illumination of the Spirit uh, to transform your heart and mind to the truth of the Word, drawing you closer to Christ, transforming you by the Spirit from the inside out. And for those who are here who are outside of the church, of the faith, I pray that this time of the hearing of the Word coincides with God's timing of calling you to salvation in Christ through His Gospel. Now reading from Matthew 14, 22-33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the church gathers, we come to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Son of God, our Redeemer. Lord, we come to sing praises to the truth of your works, 
and the glory of your name. We come to pray earnestly that the Spirit would move amongst us, continuing to transform us more and more into the image of Christ through the work of the Spirit and the Word, that our affections would be drawn more and more to Christ-likeness. And God, we pray as we continue our public worship this morning that we would be submissive to the word, that each of us are yet sinners. Lord, I pray that you show us the places that we think no one sees, our secret high places we've built, the idols in our lives the places where we put ourselves as front and center of object of worship. God, I pray you would break us of these idols and knock down these high places so that your people would pursue you in fullness. Lord, we know we are sinners, unworthy of your grace, yet you have bestowed on us great worth by your own good pleasure. And is the power of the blood of Christ, the power that is beyond that, of our ability to overturn through our own sinfulness. Your grace abounds in our lives. Let us cling to this truth. And Lord, we pray for the unbelievers in our midst. We pray that according to your sovereign plan in eternity past, you have chosen this time for them to be drawn by the Spirit and through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through your word, that they'd be drawn to the truth of their own sinfulness, rebellion, brokenness, and separation from God Almighty. Their eyes and their hearts would be opened, their minds cleared of the bondage of sin. They'd be brought to faith, new life in Christ through regeneration of the Spirit. Repent of dead works, turn from them. And be transformed into a kingdom citizen of Christ. Now, we pray that your name is glorified in our midst through our continued worship through the ministry of the word. May you be glorified. May the church be lifted up. And may the unbelievers be convicted and brought to faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last week I mentioned that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one, it's one of two miracles mentioned in all four Gospels. But this next one, Jesus walking on water, the account of this is considered to be the most often preached or taught miracle outside of the resurrection in all of Christian history. And I have to tell you, a lot of it's wrong. And I don't stand here saying like, listen to me, I have all the right answers, but today, listen to me. For what I hope is the right answer. Here's what happens with this text. Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Raise your hand internally. If this sounds familiar. Jesus walked on water. When Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he was walking on water too. 
But when he turned his eyes from Jesus, he failed. You see, the problem with us is we take our eyes off Jesus. And when we take our eyes off Jesus, we fail. That is not the gospel. That is moralism, which is the opposite of the gospel. Here's another one. Instead of making it straight moralism, instead it becomes at every moment of the story an allegorical reach. See how Jesus calmed the storm? Jesus calms the storms of your life. When you take your eyes off Jesus, the storms prevail, but when you keep your eyes, all the eyes, all the, all of us, do you see the centrality of what we've been taught for most of our lives or for years on this passage? Makes it completely and utterly self-focused. When we do this, when we do that, Peter did this and Peter did that. But just like the feeding of the 5,000 isn't about a lot of bread, so Jesus walking on water isn't about Peter. It's a continuation of the story of asking the question, who is this? And one of the things that I've introduced, and maybe it wasn't for some of you are familiar with it, but introduced when we started this this, um, series on Matthew was the the creator-creature distinction. And some of you probably started turning it off because I mention it almost every Sunday now because I want you to realize it's central to understanding it is central to understanding the gospel that a perfect and unchanging triune God who is creator and redeemer and there he is in perfection and timelessness and holiness and then his creation because of sin is changing sinful unholy and there's a division between the two but the one the creation needs to be brought back into fellowship or covenant with that creator Otherwise, separation is the only thing. And so that unchanging triune God out of his good pleasure and his mercy sends Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. From Genesis 3 all through the Old Testament, looking forward to that Messiah. And then when he arrives... It is God in his humiliation when Jesus takes on flesh the time with which he humiliates himself so that he might pay the price for the sin of his chosen people from all nations and tribes. And it's through his humiliation that we walk now through the gospel. It's an account of this time of his humiliation. And he goes to the cross His broken body and his blood taking on your curse and mine and all of those he would call by his name. And in that, that separation is connected through redemption. And so when we're reading the account of his this gospel account, we're doing it on the other side of all of that reality, just as the readers of this gospel were. 
And so when we look at these miracles, one thing we're supposed to keep in mind is like, who is this? We know who he is. But that's what the author of this wanted people to ask. Who is this? And the disciples have a problem with it. They keep seeing all these things over and over again, and they keep going like, what was that? What does that mean? They're surprised, showing the real problem of the sinfulness of man. A story completely and utterly about Jesus. The key isn't where Peter's eyes were, whether they're on Jesus or they go off and then he's walking on water and then he can't swim. The whole point of it is that Jesus' eyes never leave him. It's his power how Peter was able to walk on water. Not Peter's ability, not his faith, not his moral decision. It was Jesus and his power sustaining Peter. And that's how we're supposed to see this. This is all about Messiah. What there is about us, we should already know and be horrified by. We are sinners still, even though we are redeemed. We fight it every day. Want to be a moralist, which is not the gospel? Want to just walk around and say, do better. I'm going to do better today. I did really bad yesterday. I cataloged all my sins. It was a pretty bad day. Today, I'm doing better. How's that working for you? Not working very well, right? If you're honest. Look at this. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So this is a, a immediate after the event of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we read a little bit of John uh, from last week where it shows the author uh, of John is talking about how the crowds followed Jesus and kept asking for more miracles. And they wanted more signs of who he was. And he rebukes them. Here in Matthew and in Mark, it just gives the account of Jesus dismissing the crowds. So, but first he dismisses the apostles. He makes them get in the boat and he is going to row across the sea to go where he's going to meet them. And then he dismisses the crowds. And the whole purpose of it is, is that he wants seclusion, a time alone to pray. And if you remember the feeding of the 5,000, what did it start with? He was seeking a secluded place that he wanted to be by himself, but the crowds followed him and he took compassion on them. And after this outpouring of compassion, after this royal feast that he invites close to 15,000 people to and ministering to their physical needs, healing them and all of them walking in a way going, that was tasty. And later asking him for more signs. He sends the disciples away. And he goes to pray. Now, in this, you could take a whole sermon and talk about the necessity of prayer. And not just the necessity of prayer, but the necessity of lengthy prayer. The, the, the need for seclusion. The need for just getting a moment between you and God. And I want to say as a side note, as I'm not talking primarily about prayer here... 
If you don't have that in your life, don't tell me you don't have time. Make time. Give me a report of your television watching, or people don't even watch it, phone watching, and tell me you don't have time. Make time. Take an honest account of where you are in your life. Pray out loud. Don't set a time limit. Just keep praying. And don't use this example as a time limit because this is about eight hours. From the end of the feast and the getting rid of the crowds to where he actually goes and meets the disciples on the water, here it's around after dinner time. When he meets the disciples, it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Jesus went to a mountain and prayed for hours. Want to know where the disconnect might be in your life? It might not be your Bible reading. It might not be your theology knowledge. It might be that you have an anemic prayer life. One that hardly resembles what we see, not just as Jesus as the example, but what we see in all of the New Testament. A model of the Christian life is a Christian man and woman who recognize that distinction, the creator and the creature, now in covenant, but still sinful. Paul, in the middle of writing, will cry out, who will save me from this body of death? If the reality is is that we're fallen and we're sinners and dwelt by the Spirit, that is, twisting our conscience, there's only one thing to do. Take some time on your own and pray. I have kids. Well, a lot of people have kids. Find someone that can watch your kids. Say, I want to pray for a couple hours. Have a friend take your kids. Your spouse should be able to take the other kids if you have a spouse. If not, find a way. There's people in this audience, in this audience, in this congregation today. Shame on me. I am ashamed of myself. I'll be praying about that tonight. In this fellowship of the saints, in this gathering of the elect, there are people who will gladly watch your kids if what you really need is a time alone to pray. Jesus takes hours. He goes after something he's been seeking for a time, communion with the Father, as only the Son had communion. It says there he's alone, but the boat by the time when was a long way from the land in verse 24. It's a, it's a Greek measuring term for the English words we get long way. And it was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Here's what happens to our minds when we think about Jesus walking on water. And I dare you to tell me I'm wrong. When you see it in your mind, the water is glassy calm. And he's just walking. And the disciples are floating on their backs in the calm water. There's Jesus walking. No, what does it say? 
It's in the middle of a storm. And by this time, according to Mark, they've been rowing at this, trying to get to the other side for between eight and ten hours. They were in the middle of a massive storm. Now, we know there's an account earlier of Jesus sleeping during a storm and just telling the weather to be quiet. We know there's an account of Jesus healing the unhealable with a word. In the midst of hundreds of witnesses stopping the bleeding of a woman who would have been shamed in that culture for a dozen years, and she's healed by touching his garment. Jesus has shown the crowds, his opponents, the disciples, works that can only be ascribed to that which is impossible within nature, supernatural, outside of the ability of man. It's been the entirety of his humiliation, is to show the people something new, something never seen before. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand and it's time to repent. And the king has come in his humiliation in rags so that his people might share in his glory. And so in the midst of a storm, the people who've been with him for years now with the purpose of understanding who this man is, he uniquely calls them from different places in society, from the low, a fisherman, to the high, a tax collector. And then he has others that come to believe in him all the way up to his opponents, like Pharisees and such. And they all in some way or another are going, there's something there. And in the middle of a storm, and the words mean like waves cresting, and the winds are kind of like extreme. We're used to winds around here when we have storms. And so in the midst of that, in the fact that they've been at this for eight to ten hours, just trying to get to the other side. And it just says, Jesus walked along the water. That's the literal translation. He just walked along the water. So if you've ever been in, out in sea, and there's some Navy men in, in, in the room. And the waves are cresting. And the wind is blowing. And here's someone ignoring all of it, walking. That's what we have to understand. Have you ever, have you ever thought of it in this way? When we think of Jesus walking on water, we go, oh, man, that's the power of God. And that's a miracle. And you are right. It is a power. Of, it's the power of God. And it's a miracle. But guess what? It's Jesus holding back his power. He's in his humiliation. This is nothing. Walking on water? Are you serious? Paul says he created all things. He was there at the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He created all things for his glory and made the earth, the creation, the theater of his glory. Walking on water? That's him suppressing his glory. When we see these miracles, that's him letting a little bit through for the people to understand. But then all of it, he's suppressing his glory. You should be amazed at that. And yet look what happens with the apostles. Or who would become the apostles? I'm sorry, the disciples. 
the fourth watch of the night, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. And it says, and they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. They saw him walking on the sea. There they are in this terrible storm. And they see Jesus walking on the sea. They just saw him eight hours ago. And they've seen him every day for a few years. And he's walking on the water. It says they see him and they were terrified. And what were they terrified? And what did they say? They screamed out, it's a ghost. So when they are in the midst of this, this dreadful storm, and they recognize Jesus, and for some reason they turn to superstition. It's a ghost, which is a symbol of God letting us know we're about to die, which would have been the insinuation of them saying, in terror, it's a ghost. The irrationality of the fear. I'm betting most of us have never been in a boat as they were built in the first century, in the middle of a storm like this. So don't discount fear. Many of you have been in situations, or many of us have been in situations, where something, a situation happens, an accident, whatever it may be, whether you're a, and then there's higher levels for those who have been police officers or in the military, where a sudden situation happens and the first thing that hits you is fear. But if you're in a sustained place of fear for hours, irrationality becomes the norm. A sustained place where emotions are high and all of a sudden you see something that isn't supposed to be possible. A person walking on water, and then your first example is, it's a ghost, we're going to die. We don't know how far away Jesus was, we don't know how close he was, don't try to, to speculate on that, because all it writes is that they cried out in fear, and they were terrified, and it was a ghost. But it says immediately, or right after, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart is the exact phrase that the angel tells Joshua. Be of courage. He's telling them not say, hey, I'm here, don't be afraid. He's like, when, when Joshua is told, stand up. Be of courage. It is I. And this is maybe one of the worst English translations. This is the word, all, this is the Phrase, two Greek words, all throughout the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am. That's the phrase. He says, don't be afraid, or do not fear, I am. Be of courage, I am, do not be afraid. The authors of the Gospels were clear in their intention to show that in the aftermath of them receiving the Spirit and their eyes being opened, whether they are the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all the varying ways with which they were missing that which was so clear to them. Jesus is telling them as he ignores the weather and walks to them, I am, do not fear. If you want to take something from this passage and run with it, don't don't take Peter's eyes on and off. 
Don't take Jesus in the storms of your life. Take this right here. As a people who can be typified by fear, fear guiding them in all aspects of life. If you are in Christ, this is Jesus telling his disciples who he is. The Christian man and woman are not supposed to live a life that is conquered by their emotions, whether it's fear, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, whatever it might be, greed. The Christian man and woman are supposed to be guided by this principle, broken, sinful, undeserving creature that I am. But God has made me of the greatest value. Nothing that I do, nothing that I pursue will please him into saving me. My life is not a list of as I go through the day going, now today God will be pleased with me. Rather, he is pleased with you. You have it upside down. You have it backwards. He was pleased with you before you were created. He chose you before then. That is how great of a value you are to him. A precious treasure. An inheritor of grace. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. Fear. Lust, anger, all these things, if they define how your mind operates, it's not that you have taken your eyes off Jesus, it's that you haven't taken your eyes off yourself. Stop convincing yourself who you are of no worth of too much worth, whatever you are between that spectrum right there mentally. I'm doing really great. God, you know, most people are saved by grace, but I think God saw a little bit more. That's not generally where people are, though. And if you are, um, I don't want to hang out with you. (laughs) But most people tend to find themselves at this other end of the spectrum. If God only knew what I think, if my friends only knew what I struggle with, if my family knew what I was really like, I'm not worthy. But God says you are. Fear, lust, anger, all the emotions in a culture that says, What's king? Whatever you're feeling. How do we guide our life? Well, if, if I feel like right now uh, it would please me to do, insert the blank, then I am doing what I'm supposed to do and living my um, goodest life now. <laughs> For visitors, I refuse to say the title of that book. The people, the men who saw him heal, who saw him do the impossible, who sat there with the baskets a few hours earlier saying, how are we going to feed all these people? 
And Jesus said, you feed them. And then he gives thanks. And then he gives the baskets to them and they pass them out. And there's much more left over. How did that happen? They know how it happened. And yet when the reality of something in the sensate hits them, they forget. And then when they walk on water, they think he's a ghost and they're about to die. But he reminds them who he is. I am the creator, the redeemer. I am, you are with me. You are mine. He's trying to remind them at all times. You are mine. The wind, the storm, the waves. And then look at Peter's response. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was what? Afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It's interesting here, if you've read the account of Mark, the author Mark rebukes the disciples in a way in his writing to point out that they did not know what the feast was about because their hearts were hard. So in the midst of all these things that they see, what is the most central thing we can define the apostles by? Their unbelief, their fallen nature, their inability to understand. An inkling of understanding that had all to do with Jesus going, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. They're like, okay. And they go with him, and then the, they go through all of the disciples with him, and we look at them, and they're no different than you or I. Without the supernatural work of the Spirit, none of this makes sense. So Peter, who would become one of the leaders of the church in the book of Acts, is a case of watching this sin nature play out. And Peter is central in all of the Gospels, in his account of his, what seems to be at times, courage, right? Because Jesus says, be of courage. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll come meet you. And then he falls. And then he doubts. And then when Jesus tells him, like, I'm going to the cross. And he's like, surely not. And Jesus calls him, not the greatest name to call a friend. Get behind me, Satan, calling him an accuser, calling him a tempter. Of course, the most famous one is, is Peter, he, leading up to it, aggressively chopping off the ear of a servant when Jesus is arrested even though Jesus willingly allows himself to be arrested, heals the servant. And then when we see Peter in his worst moment, where he flees from a girl who's accusing him of being with Jesus, and he denies him three times as Jesus told him, and Jesus told him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, meaning wants to test you. And Peter fails. 
after everything. This is a Peter who literally got to walk on water. And yet what's typified by him is his unbelief, his lack of faith. This passage is not about Peter's faith. And it's not about where his eyes are. It's about the power of Christ showing his disciples how small their faith really is. As he picks Peter up and says, you have little faith. And then once again, like the first account of the storm, he ceases it. And it says, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God, which was a title Christ had given himself, which was an implication of his being Messiah. We live in an age of the church. All of that quiet was me debating with my own mind to say this. And, and the, I don't know who won. You, you decide. One of the things we've been talking about on Wednesday night a lot, or I've been griping about a lot, and I've mentioned here at times, is, is there seems to be a place that we, we are in, in history of the church. We are part of something called the evangelical movement. And we're a part of it, and it's lost its way. It's shallow, vacuous, devoid of any real pushing. Oh, sure, there's political agendas. That's not the gospel. That's not the Christian life. What happened to being children of the Reformation? When did we become okay with just not reforming anymore in ourselves, in our churches? When did it become okay for us to be simply living a life that looks like faithlessness? Where's the urgency? This is the last age. Before Christ returns, we're a part of the church. We're the elect of Christ. We're not an audience. We're brothers and sisters adopted by the Most High God who calls us to lives that reflect his glory. And yet more often than not, we're fighting over nonsense. More often than not, we make excuses why we shouldn't be with a a fellowship or a group of believers on the Lord's Day. That's playoffs today. Awesome. What's wrong with you? This isn't a game. Your life is immortal. Christ has set you apart for glory. 
And what he's put you here for, the here and now, is a part of this local assembly. Or if you're visiting and you're part of another local assembly, what he's put you for here and now is to glorify him in your life. And in doing so, at all times, you have to acknowledge who you are. Broken, sinful, rebellious, in constant need of renewing of the Spirit through the Word and through the fellowship of the saints. That's who you are. We're in the midst of a movement that started in the, a century ago that had to do with the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. And now it's about who knows what? Politics, terribly shallow music, skinny jeans and expensive shoes. Lord, return. The reformers believed. The early church believed. The authors of the books of the New Testament believed that there is justification in Christ alone. And we find our answers in Scripture alone. And the life of the Christian man and woman is lived as one of war, of constant contention with yourself. At all times, leaning on the power of the Spirit, at all times, being a person of prayer. Why? Because you know you are a pilgrim on the way an alien, a sojourner, as the authors of of the New Testament would say, someone who's here for a time in a home that is not their own, surrounded by enemies, who you are called to make brothers and sisters. That's the life that Christ signed you up for. I pray every person here prays this week, and I hope you do, for renewal of your own mind and heart. Pray for reform in your own life. Take an honest account of how you view this life. What does your day-to-day look like? Is there prayer? Is there the word? Is there a time with the fellowship of the saints? Or is it just one Wrote movement after the other. Marching down an assembly line of mediocrity. Your future will not be defined by mediocrity, but glory. And your present right now demands that you understand your inheritance in light of the here and now. We're going to see through the rest of this gospel. All of these things that happen with these disciples are pointing them to the understanding of just who this man was. And the fear will come with them and stick with them all the way to the chapter in Acts where the Holy Spirit comes. And then Peter, the wishy-washy, the coward, the bad sword fighter, whoever you want to see him as, is transformed by the renewal of the Spirit. Live a life that understands these truths.
We are not moralists who think we're going to please God with our good works. We are recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit in our turning of our hearts and our minds to Him means we can walk into the good works prepared for us beforehand. Now, if you are here as an unbeliever today, I want this to be clear to you. You are a creature. It's not a complimentary word, I know. You're thinking of horror movies and all these other things, but you are a creature, meaning you were created. And you are in as a descendant of Adam, the first man, a sinner by birth, by nature, and by choice. You are spiritually dead. And your eternity is separation from God. But he calls people to repent and have faith that he made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the redeemer of his people. And he calls you to repent and believe. If that is you, if you've repented and you've believed, I'm going to be over here this morning. Bo's going to be over there this morning. We'd be happy to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for a, a reformation of the church. I pray it starts with as individuals of this church that you would move us in the spirit to see the seriousness of our times, that you would move us out of complacency and mediocrity to a life dedicated to Christ, fully in pursuit of him. Lord, strengthen us through the spirit. Bind us to one another in fellowship and the power of your holy and true word. May you be glorified in our public worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.